Welcome to the Factory Futures Podcast, where we profile the thought leaders, technologies, and companies revolutionizing high-tech manufacturing. We learn from the best about how they sustain high-performance leadership in technology, their personal life, and their companies. If you're just joining the podcast, my name is Drew Allen. I'm the host, and when I'm not chatting with these fine folks, I'm the VP of Strategic Development at Grace Technologies. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Today on The Factory Futurist, we have Bill Humbert. He is nationally known as an engaging speaker, an expert in talent, attraction, and a career transition professional. He's published over two books, and a third book is coming soon. We get into that a little bit in the podcast. He has had talent attraction experience since 1981, contributing to the success of companies by training clients to attract top talent after his engagement is complete. He only works with one company at a time and charges a flat monthly fee for recruitment and top talent consulting. His clients span many different industries and locations. He is a desired national television guest with over 102 television interviews, including CNN, Headline News, third-party ebook author, podcast guest, and national radio guest. He creates new content upon request for his clients, and he is really passionate about his topics, including proper goal setting. And we get into this a little bit in the podcast where he discusses how he set a goal to hitchhike from Washington, D.C. to Los Angeles, California in five days and was successful in both 1969 and 1970. I am so lucky to have him in. A lot of people are looking at career transitions right now, and I think he has got some great advice on whether you're looking at attracting new talent to your business or whether you are now finding yourself in the position of being unemployed and are looking for the next new thing. Please join me in welcoming Bill Hubbard. Well, Bill, thank you so much for taking time today to be on The Factory Futurist. How are you doing today? How is your quarantine? Oh, my quarantine is just fine. I've been working out of a home office since 1990, so nothing's changed. But I, I understand you're quite the quite the skier, and you uh, uh, you haven't been able to be on the slopes much. No, and you know I can see the slopes from our living room, and it's so disappointing to watch that snow melt without any of us on it. <laughs> is it warm? But is it is it melting pretty fast? Well, you figure we had about a nine foot base, which was pretty solid snow. And that was mid-March. So it really hasn't melted a whole lot up there in the mountains. Well, fantastic. Um, So, Bill, you have got quite the story past in a good way. Um, And um, I I was, you know, the the headline that hit me um, is I believe we're up to 30 million Americans out of work. That's correct. That's uh, I'm not sure if that included this week's total or if that was the previous week's total, but it's some ridiculously massive number. And I know that in the industrial market, which is the vast majority of our listener base, there are a lot of changes happening. Um, I'm not seeing mass layoffs yet from any sort of of our industrials. I am seeing furloughs, um, but you know, it it does make you question how much longer until there's some amount of layoff or people kind of looking for a change. Um, So I'm really interested in getting your background, um, you know, discussing kind of hiring and what the strategy needs to be um, as you're, um, uh, you know, as you're making those career moves. But before we get into all that juice and and, uh, meat, um, just Tell us a little bit about yourself. Would tell us a little bit about your story, 
uh, what are you doing now? And yeah. So one thing that very few people know about me is in 1969 on Easter Sunday, I read a, a Greyhound ad in the Washington Post. And it said that Greyhound would get you from DC to Los Angeles in five days. And I thought, well, if Greyhound can do it, I can do it. So I went about properly setting a goal to hitchhike from Washington, D.C. to Los Angeles in five days. We made it. You made it? Okay, so how long exactly did it take you? Five days. <laughs> <laughs> just five days. We got our best ride was from just north of Wichita, Kansas, all the way to Huntington Beach, California. You know, my dad actually grew up in Pasadena. He served Huntington Beach like most of his life. So, yeah. um, so what, what was your main lesson that you learned on that epic journey? You know, this might be kind of surprising. My main lesson that I learned was I can do anything I set my mind to do. Mm. And, you know, it's really interesting, Drew. The next summer... I registered for classes at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and Jack and I set the same goal to be in Santa Barbara in five days, and we made it again, and then we set a goal to go from, to hitchhike from Santa Barbara back to D.C. in five days, and we made that again. So we were as reliable or maybe even more reliable than Greyhound. So, so, when, did, so when did you start kind of applying that lesson in your career? We'll give you some examples when you applied that resourcefulness, that resourceful attitude in your career. Well, I was in construction in the 70s in the D.C. area, and there were some times where I had to be really creative in terms of getting vendors to get supplies to our job sites. And and so I did that and used that then. But I started recruiting in 1981 and, you know, the recruiting business, as opposed to being an HR recruiter, is very interesting because the recruiter owns nothing in the process. They don't own the candidates. They don't own the, the companies. And so you're in a pure sales situation. And the nice thing about humans is they make life really interesting because they can be very creative, too. And I had to use a lot of creativity to be successful for these 39 years. So talk to me a little bit about Recruiter Guy and your books. And, um, you know, so, so when, when, when did you totally strike out on your own? And tell us a little bit about that story. So in 1990, uh, I went out on my own. And I started working out of our house in Maryland. And... It was fun because I realized up until then I'd been working for a recruiting firm and they took 40 to 50% of my fee. And I thought, you know what? I can go do, do all the things that they're doing for my support. I can do myself and get hundred percent of my fee. And so 1990, I went out on my own. My first recruiting contract, which has become my model since 1992 was with a little known long distance carrier, actually by that time they were pretty well known, MCI Telecommunications. And 
my model that I've had since then is to work with one company at a time and charge a flat monthly fee. So that enables me to totally focus on that client and recruit for them and see where they have holes in their recruiting process and then help them take care of it and improve their process. Um, in 1993, I needed to recruit, and you'll really appreciate this given the, where you're sitting. I had to recruit a minimum of 120 IT professionals for Cedar Rapids, Iowa in 12 months. And before, before GoDaddy existed in Cedar Rapids, before anything existed in Cedar Rapids, <laughs> there were oatmeal plant. Exactly. Well, you know, Aegon was there. Rockwell Collins was there. Rockwell Collins did not have an IBM mainframe shop, and that's what I needed. Aegon did, but those people weren't going to be, you know. Telecommunications in those days was the wild, wild west. Um, Aegon was, you know, insurance, build consensus, make a decision. MCI was, let's get 60% of the information, make a decision. We know we're going to have to tweak it and let's go on. And, and so the groups that I was supporting initially at MCI were friends and family and 1-800-COLLECT. And the commercial billing organization, and that's the one I had to transition from Pentagon City, Virginia to Cedar Rapids. So you talk about goal setting. I needed to set a goal and, and build consensus with the hiring managers. And I needed to, uh, what we ended up doing was my strategy was to go all across the United States um, the last two weeks of every month, and we would pick particular cities, and we would interview 18 to 24 candidates per day, make hiring decisions every single night, wow. um, get those approved by sending an email at, oh, by the way, 2400 baud in the hotel rooms. <laughs> And <laughs> to Colorado Springs, get approval to fill those positions. And Drew, there were there were nights where people that we interviewed during the day said, hey, you know, I'm really interested. If you get approval to extend an offer to me by midnight, go ahead and give me a call. And there were some nights I did that. I called people at midnight to extend an offer and they all accepted. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so... Okay, so then you let when it, so you left MCI after that. So what was so and, and you moved on to be your kind of what, what was the next step? Well, after recruiting, so with that was a we had to have 120. We we managed to recruit 143 in those 12 months, and then I needed to recruit another 80 in the next eight months for MCI to fill their staff. And as a result of that, um, towards the end of that period of time, when we were really close to hitting the goal, I said to um, well, Iowa Realty, who were a huge help for me in, in relocating all those people, I said, well, my contract's all over. I really appreciate all your help. You guys have been great. And Mary Penny was the person that was really leading it for me, and, and she was amazing. And I um, said, so thanks. 
And they said, whoa, 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 you're too good at recruiting people for Cedar Rapids. <laughs> and so, uh, so there was this little guy by the name of Clark McLeod. And, uh, and so I was recruited by McLeod to, uh, to actually move from 30 acres in Maryland to a subdivision in Marion, Iowa. I had corn growing off my deck in Maryland and I couldn't see any corn in Marion, Iowa. (laughs) (laughs) So go figure. So we spent, uh, well, I spent a year and a half as their manager of recruiting, um, the day, literally the day they went public, I said, Hey, that was really fun. See you guys. <laughs> and went back in business for myself. So, so when you were, when you're doing that recruiting for MCI, it sounds like it was quite the challenging point in your career. So, you know, beyond obviously the hitchhiking across the country and what that kind of taught you about yourself, what did you find out during yourself during that incredibly kind of stressful period? You know, Drew, I, I didn't really experience that much stress. I mean, you would have thought that I'd been going crazy, right? Was it more fun? It was the excitement. Yeah, it was fun. It was exciting. Every time we got, although I do have one time where I was a little bit stressed, I have to say. Um, so in, in January of 1993, um, we recruited five people to move to Cedar Rapids. And um, so MCI had remodeled the Palmer building on Fifth Street in downtown Cedar Rapids. So it was a three-story building um, for the 200 people that I was recruiting. Well, in February, there were none. (laughs) And so Steve Brandenburg, the VP, caught up to me on that weekend in between. I came to Cedar Rapids the the weekend in between our weeks of travel just to kind of see what's going on and get my fingers on the pulse. And Steve caught up to me in the Palmer building and he said, so Bill, I just counted all the bodies here. And, um, you know, I, I think I only counted five. And I said, yep. That's how many are here. <laughs> and he said, uh, do I need to be worried yet? <laughs> and so, yeah, there was a little bit of stress in that moment. But, you know, I did the uh, the old duck in the water with the feet paddling like crazy. And I went, Steve, it's January and February. Nobody wants to move to Iowa in January and February. I said, in March, we'll get them. And so uh, sure enough, the first week in March, we recruited and offered and extended 23 candidates and they all accepted. And the second week in March when we were recruiting, we we offered and extended another 10 people and they accepted. So by the time May came around, Steve was feeling a little bit more comfortable. So, you know, it, I mean, we all in our careers, you know, when we get on shows like this, we, we like to kind of talk ourselves up and, you know, that's why we're here, right? We like to, you know, share the good stories, but there had to have been some failures and some massive learnings that you learned from those failures. I mean, you being kind of the recruit, the recruiter guy, I mean, obviously you've been coaching people your entire life with the question of, you know, well, what's your biggest weakness or what's been your biggest failure in your, your learning. So I want to turn that back around to you. 
So either, either what's been like kind of a recent failure that you've learned from that's been interesting or what was an early failure that really made a good impression on you that really set you up for later success? So we'll go with the early one first. In my first total year of recruiting, so this was 1981 going into 1982, I successfully introduced one person to a client. And after the company took their share, I made $3,625 my first year in recruiting. (laughs) Now, most people would have said, heck with that. But fortunately, my wife was a nurse, so she had her income that she was bringing in. And it enabled me to learn from that first year the things that I did well, the things I needed to improve. And the second year, I made 28000 The third year, 35 or something. And, and it just went up from there. So what I learned from my first year of failures is how to focus on my strengths, number one. And then number two, how to improve the things that I did not do well. And that benefited me the next year and then every year since. Now, regarding a more recent failure or what I would describe as a failure, my business, as you mentioned, is consists of four things. It's the recruiting uh, talent at attraction consulting business. It's the coaching professionals and finding a job. And those two businesses are going along really well and enabled me to pivot back and forth depending on the economy. And then I have my speaking business, my author business. The speaking business has been a little bit tougher nut for me to crack. And I've I've learned an awful lot in the past four years about the speaking business. And so that's, that's one that was uh, from my perspective a failure, but every time I had a failure, I learned from it. Well, let's, let's take that failure idea a little bit and, and let's start talking about strategy for employees who maybe just got laid off or, um, you know, or, or know things are rocky at their company and are looking for a change. Talk me through what should be going through their mind right now. Uh, what, what should they be thinking? What actions should they be taking? Um, you know, talk to them kind of directly and tell them what they should be doing right now. So the most important thing to understand right at that moment, whether they were laid off or they've just come to the decision that this job that when I started, I thought I thought or hoped that I was going to be there my entire life. When you make that decision or when you get laid off, everybody goes through the stages of grieving. And those stages include depression, Um, denial, sometimes anger, uh, frustration and fear. And essentially what you're trying to get to is acceptance. Now, with my recruiting model, I have a lot of practice going through the grieving process because my, my model is to work with a company for three months minimum, and then they can decide whether they want to extend me or not. Well, not very often, but occasionally I'll get 
you know, laid off. <laughs> My contract will end after three months. Um, most times it goes five, seven. MCI was 30 months. That was my longest one. And I put so much of me into my client when I'm on a contract with them that when my contract ends, I also go through those steps of grieving. But since I have so much practice, I go through them in like in two hours. <laughs> and now it's, okay, I know what I got to do and, and I'm off and running doing it. Uh, unfortunately, most people don't ex don't have that experience, and so they literally have to work their way through it. And the best way of working your way through grieving is to be doing something positive. And that includes setting a goal for when it is that you want to find the next job. Um, I, I strongly advise professionals who maybe have – six months to a year of severance pay to get right back on that horse and start working it right away. Because once you get five, six months down the road, then companies start wondering if, if maybe you're not any good. So it's so, a really bad move to say, you know, I've been working my, my butt off for the last, you know, 15 years. I got good severance. I need, I, I should just take some time and, you know, go pick apples in, uh, in uh, Australia. I, you know, what I would recommend is get the job and then negotiate a month start after you uh, get the acceptance. You know, because if you're, if you're on severance, they don't have to worry about a counteroffer. <laughs> you're a free agent, right? right. And so, um, so that's when you take your trip to Australia, you've got your, your job in your pocket and you know, you're going to start it in a month. And so you go overseas and have fun. So that's, that's the first step. Now, many people, what they try to do is go online and post their resume online. And then they pray. I hope the right person is looking at my resume. <laughs> Now, the bad news is in large corporations, typically the most junior person in human resources is the one picking the resumes out of the applicant tracking system. Do they have any clue what they're looking for? They do a keyword search. <laughs> These are the resumes that pop up. And so what a lot of people don't understand is there's 34 different titles for sales. Right. And so if they're only looking for account reps, which that actually happened to me one time, I was recruiting for Aegon and the person that had access to the applicant tracking system gave me six account reps. I went, there's got to be more sales professionals out there. And I said, so how about, have you tried sales professionals? <laughs> Just thinking maybe, well, we got about another 12 out of that. And I went, ah, that's good. How about account managers? And I got about another 10 out of that. Regional sales manager. <laughs> right. Yeah. Business developers. I said business developers. And she said, that's not sales. <laughs> 
that hurt my mind. Yeah. <laughs> to be a little bit more flexible than what you're, especially in big corporate America, uh, what you're, so, so you're, so don't, so basically try to get past that, uh, that gal by actually networking. That's correct. That's 70, according to the career transition industry. So that used to be known as outplacement. Now it's career transition. And they're the folks that companies go to with their laid off workers and they pay them to help them find jobs. And over 45 years, the statistic has been remarkably consistent. 74 to 76% of all jobs are filled through networking. Mm. Wow. It's amazing. Even with all the technology. Even with all the technology. Only 8% of all jobs for the past 10 years have been filled through posting and praying. So through online jobs. And only 8% are through uh, through me, through recruiters. So let let's say, you know, let let let's let's drill in a little bit into like the industrial space. So a lot of the people on this, on this you know, listening to this podcast, they either might be, you know, engineer level folks or they've been in kind of technical sales or managing a very technical company. Does that calculus or the way to go about it change? We, we actually recently interviewed a guy and he really blew our socks off. He, he didn't even send us a resume. He only sent our portfolio of work. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I just want to hear your thoughts. Like if we, if we drill on a little bit to these more technical jobs, you know, if you've been laid off there, what, what's, does that change your strategy at all? Or is it still just networking? It's networking. It's networking. I, you know, again, and, and really put weight on that because I'm a recruiter. I get paid to recruit people for companies, but networking is the best way to find a job. I just finished my third book on finding a job. Uh, The working title is expect success, the art of the over 50 job search. And one of the people that I interviewed for that book on networking was a fellow by the name of Mark Capone. And he was, he just resigned as CEO of Myriad Genetics and he was the founder of the company. And I said, you know, just for the people that I'm helping find, find new jobs, how do you feel about people networking into your company? And he said, Oh my goodness, I would much rather get a candidate from a trusted source who knows our culture, knows this person would be a fit in our culture and recommends that person to me. I will probably hire, if they've got the right knowledge, I'll probably hire them every single time. So definitely, so definitely the networking. So let's, do you have any other pointers for people on the job search before we kind of turn it to the idea of, Hey, my business just went down 40%. I'm, I'm needing to really shake up my, you know, my staff. Do you have any other thoughts for kind of the, the out of the out of job uh, technical person? Well, one of the things is make sure on your resume that your name and contact information are not in a header. Make sure they're in the body of the resume because in a lot of applicant tracking systems, that header is treated like a photograph and it can't read the photograph. So you come and you've spent all that blood, sweat and tears creating that resume and your name and contact information is up in a header. The applicant tracking system can't see it. And now 
all of a sudden I'm getting this resume and I'm going, wow, wow, wow. Ah, I don't know who it is. <laughs> so one, just while we're on the topic of resumes, one thing that I've noticed that really works for me that really, when we're looking at new applicants, I love when people follow the, I did this, I led this, you know, this was like kind of short description of what it was. And then what the result was out of that actual piece. And it, it's like, you know, you get a lot of the resumes that just say, Oh, I, I did this thing. And you have no idea what the actual result was. And for me, you can kind of tell, I look at a lot of sales resumes and I look at, you know, other resumes as well. You can really tell the people who are kind of bullshitting the numbers because it's oh, I grew sales by 75%. Right. You know, okay. Uh, How'd you do it? Yeah. What, what'd you do? I grew, you know, it'd be, you know, over, you know, I led a sales team that converted 10 extra accounts, which let, you know, what, you know, it seems to me like almost the more specific you can get, the more you can kind of cut through the bullshit. I agree. You know, in 93, when I was on the MCI contract, I had an assistant and she timed me as I went through every resume this one Monday morning when I got back to DC. And she put a stack of about 120 resumes on my desk. And so I'm going through the resumes and I'm putting some in the definitely interested, some in the not interested, and then some in the painful, I'll take another look. And I got all done. She said, hey, I just timed you as you went through those resumes. Now, Drew, I'm a DC kid. I'm an East Coast kid. So I can sometimes be a little direct. And I probably said something I shouldn't have. But I said to her, so um, didn't I give you enough to do today? <laughs> and her response, Andrea, was amazing. She's still amazing. We're still close friends. But she was amazing. And she, her response was always spot on. And this time it was you know, Bill, you're teaching me how to be a recruiter. I knew if I asked you how much time you spent on a resume, you'd have no clue. I went, yeah, that's right. What'd you find out? She said, you spent as little as two seconds on a resume and they went into definitely interested and definitely not interested stack. You spent as much as 12 seconds on a resume and those went into definitely in, are not interested and the painful, I'll take another look stack. And then you, you averaged six seconds of resume. Wow. So, so candidates have six seconds on my first pass, which is the one that determines whether they move on or they go away wow. to get my attention. And you know what? That was 93. So I like to think I've improved since then. 25% <laughs> improvement by reading tens of thousands of resumes. Yeah, well, I've read over 400,000 in, in, since 1981. <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. That is that is crazy. Um, yeah. It, you know, you could have read, I don't know, 400,000 pages on, uh, you know, uh, black swan events and preventing coronavirus for us. So. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, sorry. <laughs> All that waste of time looking at resumes now. Yeah. Well, now, well, we got some good people out of them. But. So you're right. What I suggest to people to get my six seconds, right? Um, have a summary and in a summary, put some metrics of accomplishments. And that gives, that gives me interest to look down and see where those, um, 
those accomplishments happened. And if they were 10 or 15 years ago, then I go, what's he been doing for the last 10 or 15 years? Um, but if they're more recent, that's great. And then when you get down to the um, your professional experience for each company, put your responsibilities in a, in a paragraph format and then just asterisk a few of the – or bullet point – a few of the metrics – but always put metrics in with the accomplishments. That way I know exactly what was going on. Yeah. The, the other, the other thing I, I really look for just because of our culture kind of at grace um, is I always look for kind of a weird thing. Like I, like I, I want to find something that's like really unique, um, you know, and, and an engineer who just applied for one of our jobs, he actually had experience in the NFL like he, he did, he actually did like NFL producing and developed like some camera systems or something for that, you know, and it, it, it's just, it, it's just, it gives me that idea or I look for languages, whether or not the, the job has to do for like, like it just signals to me that there's this inquisitive, like, I don't know, for us, we're not corporate like at all. So, you know, it, that's really important to us that we got someone who's, uh, who we feel is uh, enticing and interesting. But that's, that's just, you know, that I don't think a lot of companies are looking that I'm saying, you know, for us. Well, you know, I like to see people who have moved from one industry to the next uh -huh. and were successful. You know, they spent four or five years over here, four or five years over there. And, you know, so obviously they were successful enough to continue working at those two companies in different industries. And that helps me determine that, you know what? they they're worth a conversation because even though this might be the third industry, they've already shown they can adapt to it, to another industry. Yeah. So, all right, well, let's change, let's change gears for a minute. Now let's talk about employers. Okay. So I'm an, I, I'm a industrial company, um, uh, ABC. Um, and my revenue just went down 40%. Um, I'm looking at having to reduce, uh, you know, costs right now. Um, how should I be thinking about layoffs? How do I maximize, um, you know, how do I not waste the crisis and how do I attract the best talent kind of, um, on the tail end of this, uh, while moving forward, what's, what's kind of your advice to the companies? So the first thing is your company has to do a good job measuring people's performance. Because if you don't measure people's performance, then you're throwing the top performers out with the bathwater. And I've seen many, many companies make that mistake. So, you know, I suggest to companies, they really, they really need to go to or move to more of a goal-based uh, way of um, setting expectations for their workers. And then that enables everybody to see whether they're being successful or not. So when I work with a client, I like to start with the goals in the job description. So for the first three months, your responsibility will probably mainly be, and I refer to it as lap lap, learn, apply, practice, learn, apply, practice. After the first three months, 
in the second three months, now you should be practiced enough to be able to apply the things that you learned in the first three months. And then your nine month was going to, is going to be, you got to be full in and your 12 month is you got to be, you know, ready to go into the next year. And one of your 12 month goals would be to work with your manager to develop the three, six, nine, and 12 month goals for the next year. Now, this is very important. I'll tell you why. Uh, I took a real quick glimpse at Gallup's 2018 State of the American Workplace just before I got on. And what they found was 29% of frontline managers are engaged in their jobs. Only 45% of executives are engaged in their jobs. And only 36% of professionals are engaged in their jobs. So think about that. Now, think about what happens when you put three months, six months, nine months, and 12 month goals into your process, into your culture. Now, you're having people that know what their goal is know what they have to do to reach their goal, and then they have to go do it. And my belief, Drew, is that a person who is a goal-setting and goal-achieving employee is by definition an engaged employee. So number one, if you're in that situation where you're coming, you ha you've lost 40% of your business, do I have to have layoffs or not? I understand that, but it's really easy when you've got your goals set and now you're trying to determine who it is that you're going to let go. Um, General Electric had a process of laying off the bottom 5% every year. And that's part of the way they measured their bottom 5% of where they meeting their goals or not. So that's number one. So you have to know how to measure your people's performance, even the managers. And you know what? Even the executives. Don't tell them I said that, though. <laughs> so let's, so, so I, I don't think that there's a lot of controversy about, let's say, getting rid of your, your D and your F players, right? The controversy is around nice guy player you know, who, who's a B or a C, Right. I mean, so how do you how do you think about that, um, you know, from a strategy perspective, especially in a technical environment? Is it sometimes better to just have a consistent butt in the seat or are you, you know, who's, you know, B, B and C level work? Or is it now a time to kind of say, you know, what, it just you've just been here. We're not seeing growth and try to get someone better. Well, first of all, I would try to train them, you know, train them up. But if they don't accept that training, I'd probably train them out personally. Um, so you know, come, training them out. Is this different than just letting them go and providing them severance? No, it's what it is, is you have the conversation and you agree that they're not happy there. 
<laughs> and then you say, you know, we want to make you happy. So tell you what, we're going to give you some severance and let you go find someplace where you're going to be happy. So you give them the opportunity to accept training to improve. And if they're, you know, they may be a nice guy, but you know what? If they're not working, they're not doing their job. It's time to let them go. So one of the books that really impacted me and kind of the way that I think about hiring in general is The Alliance by Reed Hoffman. I don't know if you, have you read it? Um, you know, and, and it was uh, basically coming together and really recognizing that the end of, you know, there, the idea that you're going to spend your life in the same job or the same company has kind of come to an end. And this idea that, Hey, I'm bringing you in to come and do some transformational piece of the company for three to five years. And after that, let's reassess and see if three to five years, you know, if there's a place here, but at the end of the day, it's gotta be mutual beneficial. And if we're at that five year period and we don't see a path together, then let's let, we'll pay you a, a hefty severance and you can continue to kind of use this as a reference and be in the network or, Hey, if they leave, the only thing that we'd say is, Hey, bring it up to us ahead of time. Um, anyways, I really encourage that book really changed the way that we talk. And a lot of when we, when we talk with applicants and we kind of share some of those principles that we found, um, that kind of honesty of like, Hey, you know what? Like the average is, you know, what, three to five years in a job, you know, of course we'd love you to stay forever, especially if you're making an impact, but let's be realistic. And we want to make sure that as you're adding value to us, we're adding value to you. So you know, whether or not, Hey, it means that you're going to be able to work on this new technology and get this new skill set, or, Hey, I'm teaching you how to do business development. So if you want to go and run a business development organization at a company in the future, you know, Hey, you've got the skill set now. Um, so how, how deep, you know, how deep do you think companies should be making cuts right now? Do you think people should be waiting it out or and, and, and trying to put off the cuts or, or do you think, a, a, you know, deeper, you know, most organizations bloated today and they, they deserve to kind of be well, you know, well cut down. Well, I, the ones I've seen, most of them are pretty lean today in terms of employees. Um, I think, a lot of the bloated organizations probably went under in 2001 when we had that recession and then certainly in 2008. So I would think that most companies are fairly lean right now. Um, you know, one of the points you made was excellent about uh, having a person come in for three to five years and then deciding, you know, what it is, you know, do you want to re-up for another three or five years or do you want to go somewhere else? Uh, Bill McGowan, who was the founder or one of the founders and the CEO of MCI Telecommunications, um, since they were my first client in 1981 and then were a good client all the way through the 80s until I took that contract with them in 92, he would tell his direct reports, look, don't plan on making a career here. Come for four or five years, do a great job, go somewhere else for four or five years, learn some new things, and then give me a call when you're done after those four or five years and, and maybe we'll bring you back. I, 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 I just, you know, I, I so believe in that. I just don't understand why companies, some companies, especially 
in town here, we have a big one, John Deere. If you leave John Deere, they literally never allow you to get back on the payroll. Yeah, I think that that is, you know, it's a cultural thing, obviously. And since John Deere's not a client, I can just say it. I think it's pretty dumb. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, yeah, I, I, I love having I love having like consultants on on the on the podcast because. The consultants are, are a lot less uh, constrained to what they can say. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, no, I, so let, let's talk a little bit about, so I, I want to get into skills a little bit. So again, in the industrial environment, where are you, you know, let's say you're laid off. What skills should you be looking at investing in yourself? There is a plethora of learning platforms today. I mean, whether or not it's negotiation techniques on masterclass or Harvard, I think has, was it 500 courses that you can get certificates in or some ridiculous number right. for free from Harvard. Right. You know, talk to me a little bit. I mean, what, where should people be like focused on improving their skills if they really want to be successful um, in the new, I guess, knowledge economy, post Corona knowledge economy, automated economy. I love that question. That's amazing. You know, for me, follow your passion is, is what you're doing right then. Was that your passion? Then how do you improve what it was you were doing previously? Or if your passion is to move and grow and move into another position, then find some coursework, find some certifications that you can get or earn and be able to to be move up into an organization. So if the person's on the line, for instance, are they on the line on a line that's um, a lean process improvement um, line or, or company that wants to use lean? If not, go start learning about lean because companies can use people who identify waste and then know how to go about eliminating waste. And especially in the industrial manufacturing world. One of my clients is mainstream management and mainstream management. Um, Joe Patton and I have worked together for 10 times since 1996. Uh, one of the companies that I, worked for Joe was Lefebure up in Cedar Rapids and Joe in there and he instituted lean process improvement and Lefebure improved their profitability. Lefebure was owned by a company out of Great Britain and they Lefebure was the crown jewel of that company in the United States because of their profitability and the way they were able to build the bank security uh, products that they had. And unfortunately, that was a good thing and a bad thing. Um, unfortunately, the company that owned them in Great Britain decided, hey, we're running out of money. We need some money. And so they sold Lefebure. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I've worked with Joe on a, a number of manufacturers recruited for him. And every single one of them, when he could, he would introduce lean. Now, one of the companies was Hoodies Nuts in El Paso, Texas. And the majority of the workers came 
across the border on a daily basis from Juarez. And they, um, many of them were not literate in Spanish, forget being literate in English. And not saying there were bad workers, they just weren't literate. So therefore, they they could not look at the different charts and see how things were improving or not. You know, it just was all lost on them. But um, lean or in today's world, it's becoming more and more known as agile uh, process improvement is uh, a great skill to bring on if you're if you're not currently working somewhere like that what 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 about um programming do you, what, what do you think i mean you know i hear i hear programming's the future kind of blue collar job um i also hear that you know potentially it's it's not the hard skill sets anymore it's not the sciences the computer science the the coding degrees that matter but it's the empathy and um, soft skills that matter. I, I don't know. I'd love to hear your riff on that kind of. Well, to me, the, uh, so let's, let's talk about scientific versus technical. The scientific skills are going to be ones that are going to be highly valued no matter what. Um, so now you're talking to a guy with an English degree. So <laughs> I don't have a lot of those scientific skills. I have great high level knowledge, but, you know, try to get me down in the weeds. I don't. Um, from a technical perspective, um, if you're talking about IT and uh, developing software, those probably, I'm guessing, are always going to be valuable skills especially as we move more and more into an automated society. Um, you know, your products go a, a ways towards that science and, you know, you've got your uh, monitoring equipment to make sure that the equipment, you know, you're able to tell whether something's going to break before it breaks. And so, so all of those types of skills are going to still be valuable. Now, is empathy valuable? Depends on what you're doing. <laughs> if you're on the line, empathy might not be so valuable. You have to be able to work with the people around you. Um, and I would guess that you may be switching from one position to another, just get some variety. But, um, it, you know, it just depends on the level. If you're a manager, then you better figure the empathy thing out. Because humans have problems and you have to work with them and help them through those problems. No, that's, that's, that's great. Hey, I, so as kind of where, as we start to kind of wrap up here, I'd love to know what in the last, you know, year, two years, whatever time frame makes sense for you, what have you really changed your thinking on? Wow. Well, you know, there's a lot. I'm uh, so let's go to politics for one second. I'm a politically a political party agnostic. Personally, I don't believe either party is really doing a good job for us. You know, they're in it for themselves. That's my perspective. Um, and so for me, I listen to what 
people who belong to each party say. And I find myself, if there's a good argument, um, it doesn't, I don't care which party it is. I go, hmm, that's interesting. Maybe I ought to take a look at that. So, so I try to learn from the people around me because I am certainly not a know-it-all. Um, it is fun for me to kind of feel like I'm able to sit up above all of the craziness and watch people not think and just believe. Um, so I, I firm, I'm a critical thinker and I, I believe that everybody should be critical thinkers. And, and when you're looking at politicians in particular, listen to what they say and then watch what they do. You know, if, if the politician is one who says, oh, you're doing, you know, everybody in the country has to be um, more uh, environmentally clean. And then they're living in a 20,000 square foot house that's air conditioned and they fly a private jet back and forth to wherever they're going, then I'm probably not going to listen to them very much. <laughs> no, I, you know, one of my kind of my intellectual heroes is Nassim Nicholas Taleb. He, he wrote the, the Black Swan and, and the Bed of Crusties and Skin. And, and the, the book that I think is most valuable here is called Skin in the Game. You know, about basically never trust someone who doesn't have skin in the game or something to lose. And it's kind of like, you know, it, you have to live by the rules that you're professing for other people to live by it so that you have some skin on the game. I think that's really, I think that's a really interesting um, take. I, I was, as you were talking, I was tooling with an idea in my head that I hope I can pull off that I'm, I'm, I'm curious what you think. So I'm not looking for a job, but I obviously keep a resume because, you know, people ask it for me if I'm doing things and, and whatever. So I have my resume and then I actually also have a posting. And so I think kind of keeping with the employer employee piece I, I think it would be super valuable if you'd be up for critiquing each of those it, it, as brutally honest as you, as you can. What, what do you, sure. will that, will that be, would that be interesting? Oh yeah. I'd be happy to. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm a little scared, but we'll, we'll see how it goes. All okay. Right. Let me, let me try to figure this out. I'll share a screen here. So Drew, while you're doing that, let me recommend a book. Okay. Uh, upgrading by Dr. Brad Smart. So a smart guy wrote Top Grading. It's probably the best book I've ever read on selecting, mentoring, and retaining um, top talent. So that's you one. You top, T-O-P gaming? Top Grading, G-R-A-D-I-N-G. Yep, great book. Fantastic. So this is my... Um, this is my resume. Now, I obviously, now I figured out I have my stuff in the header, maybe. I'm not sure. I don't mean. Well, can you put your cursor on it? Yes. So you probably, whoops, um, put your cursor on your name. Yes. So it doesn't yeah. seem like it's in the actual header. Okay. Good. Yeah. So it's, it's in the body. So um, the text-based applicant tracking systems. They have a problem with um, horizontal lines 
And so I would say get rid of those horizontal lines that you have. Um, the second thing I would do is get rid of permanent address and get rid of your street address. And then underneath your name, put Davenport, Iowa. You can, I mean, the, the zip code, you can't, you know, I don't care about that. Um, below that on the, in the center, again, everything's all centered in the center. Again, I would have your, your phone number and then a few spaces and then your email address. And then right underneath that, have your LinkedIn um, URL. So and good job on that. You've got a you've got a uh, a custom URL. You don't have the one with the letters and numbers behind it. So so just walk me through a little bit of just that thought process. Is that a visual um, a, a, a visual thing, or is that a computer um, algorithm thing? Um, this part with your contact information is strictly visual, and it makes it easy for me to see where you are and your phone number and everything. Um, your street address, you know, in today's world, I just don't think it's a good idea because, you know, you can get on Google and look at literally your house. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I just realized I'm live streaming this. It's going to be on YouTube with my, uh, with my street address. So I hope when we edit this to put it out um, in the future, I'll, we'll, we'll just go ahead and close that, uh, close that one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So the other thing is looking at the body of your resume. Um, you know, you have, you know, you've got some great accomplishments. What I would like to see are your, you know, looking at uh, Grace Engineered products, for instance, I, I would like to see your responsibilities in a paragraph format. And then, um, then your then you have your four bullet points. That's just great to have that there, you know. And you've been in business long enough now that you can have a two page resume. You don't have to have a one pager. Yeah. Um, Do you think it's worth adding a little bit more? Um, if you, if you you know if you're kind of ten years in and you've done some good things it's better to add a little bit more neat meat and paragraph form. Right. Right. Yeah. Cause that really, it goes back to what you were saying. It tells me a little bit more about you and it can give me a sense for, wow, these are the problems he overcame. These are the things that um, he needs to, to learn. Um, so down with Augustana, I would just have BA um, and then international business and marketing minor in Mandarin Chinese. Um, your GPA is amazing GPA, but you know, now we're uh, how many years out? I graduate. I mean, I guess it would be uh, like, you know, 11. So yeah, it's probably time to say goodbye to the GPA. No one gives a shit anymore. Right. Yes. It's, it's more about what you're doing. Um, Go ahead. Gone. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, 
what you could do, see, Augustana is one of those schools where there's two of them, although the other one's now Augustana University, I just found. Yeah. In the Dakotas, um, right? North Dakota? South, South Dakota, Dakota, I think. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so, I, you know, I would just, if you could get, when you put it, make it a BA, international, if you can put that all in one line, that'd be great. Okay. And you probably could if you justified Augustana to the same margin education is on. Okay. Um, certifications, just get rid of the bullet points and same thing with um, languages. So part of the problem with your resume, Drew, is that your accomplishments all get lost in a sea of bullet points. Mm -hmm. And that's just another reason to have those paragraphs, you know, breaking things up. Um, how many, so you, how long, what's your recommendation for folks um, about bullet points? Or I mean, sorry, uh, paragraph uh, length. Well, it depends on how far back it is. But, you know, let's say that it's back um, 10 years, maybe four sentences. Just don't make them run on sentences. I'm an English made, you know, degree. So that makes me crazy. <laughs> um, the other thing is, and you did a pretty nice job with this. But the other thing is make sure every sentence, go on up a little bit in your current job. Yeah. So you did a nice job. Everything needs to start with an action verb that's in past tense. Um, so advisor Adam Power Incorporated, is that a um, is that a job that you're doing or is it? It's like a, a board equity position. OK. Um, so the convention in resumes is that all of the verbs are past tense, even if it's current. Mm, okay. And so you did that at Grace and you did that at, was it Percy or Persev, whatever. Um, and yeah, now you've done it at Adam Power. Good job. Hey, we have a question actually from a viewer. Um, what's the first thing a recruiter typically looks for on a resume more or less? Does it depend on the position? Well, it depends on the position first. And then I look briefly, remember I got six seconds, the clock's ticking. Yeah. I look briefly to see if they've done what it is my client needs them to do. And then second, I look at what their accomplishments are. And I also look at the company too. If I know it's, you know, if it's a company that's uh, well known um, as being an excellent company, then that gets some extra points. Okay. So, um, you know, you really fulfill the position requirements in a clear way. Do, do, do you recommend people editing their, their resume per kind of job application to make sure it really fits to the, or, or keep it more generic? Keep one generic resume that you can tweak for every position. 
And, you know, you you speak Portuguese and Mandarin Chinese. Um, so the analogy is going to work. When you look at the job description, you're seeing what that company's language is around that position. It's important to change the verbiage in your resume so that it reflects their verbiage because then the perception is that you're speaking their language. Mm. Yeah. So if it, so, okay. Yeah. So if the, the way that they talk about things in the job description, you would want it, you would want to reflect that. Good idea. Yep. Um, let me, let me, I'm going to go ahead, stop this share and I'm going to put up one of our postings and with, you know, and, and we can shift more to the employer, uh, uh, more of the employer view. If there are other folks with questions, please go ahead and put it on the, the LinkedIn and we'll try to answer them if this is uh, super interesting to you guys. All right, so we go to the top here. So this is a, a listing obviously on LinkedIn. Um, we start with this who you are section. I know there's a lot of text there, so I apologize for springing that on you. I know you didn't think to send it to me ahead of time. <laughs> I no, I just, it just occurred to me how what a kind of a cool idea potentially to to how you like walk through, especially with the live thing. If there's other questions, it'd be sure. Great. So let's page down. You know, I think you've built a nice job description because so often what happens when I read the job description. Um, I wonder what in the heck is this person really going to do? Your job description is, is, so how do you like this? A recruiter guy is actually saying to you, Drew, you guys did a nice job. Um, <laughs> and the reason I say that is you've clearly told that person what it is that they'll be doing. And also what experience they will need to be successful in, um, in that position. One of the things that I saw though in the, what you need is um, the agile methodology. Mm. Um, so I'm interested why that didn't show up up above in um, the description itself because somewhere in there, you know, my guess is it would be important to say use agile methodology to design new products or um, usually that's where it's going to be in, in the technology world. Okay. So put that in the, put that up in this uh, section here. Yeah. So agile learner, but yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so down actually in the, what you'll do. So somewhere in there, I think, um, so maybe uh, utilizing agile methodology, write programs for embedded systems with hardware interfaces. So from um, some, my career started as a recruiter in IT recruiting. Um, back then in those days, we used to call it data processing. And they used what has become known as the waterfall um, development methodology, and it used to be called the SDLC. Mm. And waterfall, they would 
find all the requirements and get them defined. And then they, the IT organization would run away and they'd spend sometimes a year or even two years developing this huge system. And then they deliver it to the customer and it wasn't what they wanted. And, you know, companies spent tens of millions of dollars on those projects. Agile is much smarter because you're building pieces of it. Then you're going to the organization and you're saying to the organization, is this what you're looking for? And you get them to sign off on that piece. And then you go and you you create the next piece and you it's a step by step. And by the time you're done, now you're creating a system that that company has determined all the way along the way. And it might be your company, but all along the way, everybody's determined that that's what they were looking for. We got one more question here. Um, and it's a, it's a good, it's a good opportunity for you to sell yourself actually. Uh, so with the, with all the candidate information available online, you know, via LinkedIn, why would someone or should someone hire you for a candidate search, especially if they already have an internal HR department? So they're looking for my talent attraction background as a recruiter. Okay. So expound on that a little bit. So what, what superpower do you have over their HR department? The network or? Well, I have a huge network, but beyond that, so this is where empathy comes in. Beyond that, I can sit down with the executives and HR and say, these are the areas based on my research of your company where you can improve. Are you willing to do so? And if they say no, then great. You don't need me. <laughs> but if they say yeah, um, yeah, we need to learn how to be better at what we're doing. And then in that case, then we can help each other. So I am very, very good at, at the recruiting process. You know, I sent you that it shows that it is um, exactly the same as the sales process. Most companies don't understand that. You want, you want me to pull that up quick? Is sure. that really helpful? Okay. Sure. Let, me, let me stop sharing this and let me pull that up. And the other thing, Drew, that's really sells me more than anything else, get on LinkedIn and see how many times companies have used me more than once. Mm. That's a great. You have a pretty good, uh, what is it, uh, NPS score? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And the great thing is, if you look at it, the companies come from all different industries. Yeah. So, um, so this, the recruiting process mirrors the sales process perfectly. And, you know, obviously you don't need me to, to read through it all, but um, sourcing is sourcing. Doesn't matter if you're sourcing clients or if you're sourcing candidates. The needs analysis is the interview. Um, where a lot of companies fall down, and I'm really disappointed in those companies. On one hand, they're complaining that they can't find people who are good cultural fits. And then I say, well, so what questions do you ask in the reference check? And I hear, oh, we don't do that anymore. 
<laughs> well, guess what? That's where you're going to find the cultural fit or not. It's, it's the same as Mark Capone liking somebody who's networked into him through somebody who knows his culture, right? Mm -hmm. And so the reference check, if you ask good questions, for instance, what frustrates Drew? Mm -hmm. And then how does he show his frustration? Oh, that's really good. Those are really good questions. And then another great question is, if I were managing Drew, what would I need to watch for? Mm. And they go, well, what are you looking for? Well, it's open-ended, whatever. <laughs> that question has kicked out more candidates than you know. Wow. Because okay, so let, 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 let's just hold on. Let's repeat the two questions one more time. So the first question is, what frustrates Drew and how does he show his frustration? The second question is when I, if it, I manage, sorry, go ahead. You, you say it. If I were managing Drew, what would I need to watch for? Fantastic. Okay. That is, that is an awesome takeaway for employers these days for sure. Oh, uh, it's amazing. You know, and I hear all, oh, you know, our corporate counsel says we can, we'll get sued if we do, reference checks that listen in business you can get sued for anything <laughs> if you do it improperly so don't do it and teach people how and the managers should be the ones doing the reference checks by the way not hr hr has no clue about the job and so the manager is the one that has that person reporting to them and the manager knows when uh, sometimes a reference might just kind of raise a little flag. Mm. I know a lot about, or a little bit about a lot of positions, but I don't know a lot about this particular position. Mm. And so I might not see that flag, but the manager will. Hey, so, so just one question. I mean, most of the times when you've been interviewing candidates for your clients or for, you know, in general, if there was a problem, like if there was a, if there was kind of like a little red flag and you still went ahead with the offer, how often did it actually turn out, turn out good comparatively to, uh, it ended up being a big red flag that you, you know, you were just hoping it was a, a, a good fit. If it's a red flag during the reference check, that's a killer. Okay. Even no matter how big. Well, you know, if, how, how do you define how big, right? So if it's something where um, they didn't clean the dishes in the, in the company kitchen, so what? But if it's something about performance, that's a problem. Okay. I mean, because they're, they're teeing up people who should be giving you a positive, a positive reference check. It'd be all a hundred percent in your corner, right? So. Not necessarily. Okay. So Drew, four times, count them, four times since 1981, I've called a reference, given the person's name, and they burst out laughing. <laughs> And they said, I can't believe he or she used your name. One in particular, she said, I can't believe she used my name as a reference. I fired her two weeks ago. 
Ouch. And so that's the reason why you do reference checks. People think you're not going to check them. <laughs> and and the other thing is if the reference likes them they want to see them succeed and so sometimes what's happened when i've done the reference checks the person said so tell me a little bit about the position which is a great question and i tell them about the position and they go you know i love so-and-so they're a great whatever but this is the wrong job for them Mm. So people f may think they're teeing up people who are going to completely vouch for them. But if they really care for them and it's the wrong position, then they're going to say that. Now, you have to protect those references and not tell the candidate that that was a problem. What you do is you say, you know what? we've decided to keep looking or you're a great person. And, um, you know, we found another even better, great person and then just move, move forward. Well, fantastic. Bill, if there's, is there anything you'd like to ask? That, well, first of all, where can people find you? Recruiterguy.com. That's the easiest place. You got my phone number. You got my email address. You got my LinkedIn, got videos of my speeches. And all your books are on Amazon, correct? And you, you're also available for speaking. And if there's, if there's something you would like to ask the audience for or give any words of encouragement, uh, please go ahead. So I just want to tell you, going back to an earlier question that you have, what I would say to your audience is this COVID-19 terrible problem that we're having right now is going to come to an end at some point. If you do have to cut people, you got to cut them. That's all there is to it. But if you can keep them, especially the good ones, it'll pay off for you and the other side because you're going to be able to ramp up more quickly. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Bill. I really, uh, this was a great conversation. I know it's um, not about technology and factories, but I think people are the backbone and we really, really, it's, it's made, it's been really obvious the last few weeks exactly how essential kind of the, the factories you drive by every day really are to keep our society running and how essential those people that maintain our machinery, um, that get those factories up and running every day, exactly how essential they are. And so, um, I, I hope that, you know, this podcast finds everyone well and employed. Um, but if you don't, please take a lot of what Bill said to heart. And um, if you're an executive who's out of work or looking for a change, please reach out to him. He's the man. He's well, the thank you. Guy. He's not the man. He's the recruiter guy. Thank you. And the other thing, uh, Drew, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank every single person working at every single factory because you are also one of our first responders so thank you so much all right well be safe bill thank you so much you too drew thank you i hope you enjoyed this episode find us on whichever podcast app you use thank you for listening i'm drew allen we look forward to seeing you in the next episode this podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>